0: Let's pray uh, as we try to understand what is going on uh, in this passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that it um, shows us who the person of Jesus is. And we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand uh, this very interesting uh, moment in his life where he ascended into the throne room of heaven. Please, Lord, give us wisdom today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finishing a series of talks. Uh, today called Open to Question. And what we've been looking at uh, are the four most important movements of the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. And so we've looked at his incarnation, that is his descent from heaven uh, to earth as a man. And then we looked at his death on the cross, the event of Jesus' execution where he paid for all of humankind's sin. And then last week we looked at his resurrection from the dead, And now we're looking at what might be the strangest of all, his ascension back to the heavenly throne room. And we know it's strange because in the passage, uh, Naomi just read to us, after it happens, it's very funny, it's kind of comical. Uh, After Jesus ascends into the clouds, we find the disciples, the people who had followed him around for three years and went everywhere with him. They followed him on every road, up every mountain, into every city. And all of a sudden, he begins to sort of levitate, And then the text says he goes up into the clouds and disappears. And they just stand there like, huh? (laughs) And they're just dumbfounded by this. Uh, So much so that it took two angels coming and saying, guys, snap out of it. Uh, Snap out of it and head back into Jerusalem. Uh, A few years ago, I was coming back to my office in uh, San Diego, California, where I was living. I was coming back from a meeting and I was walking through the, the car park. And all of a sudden, I saw this out of the corner of my eye. Take a look at the screen. This is, this is what I saw. <laughs> oh. He's got his sunroof open. Oh, yeah, the sunroof open? Oh, my goodness. No. That went on for about 15 minutes. Uh, it actually took the paint off of one of the cars that was underneath that. And what had happened, apparently, I, we didn't know this when it happened, because we just stood there totally dumbfounded, like, why is there 50 foot of water shooting out of the ground in a car park in, you know, a shopping mall? What is going on? Um, and apparently somebody had run over a fire hydrant, and then the water just started shooting straight out of the ground 50, 40, 50 feet in the air. And so my colleague and I, you could hear him laughing, um, we just stood there just completely dumbfounded, and made, we didn't know what to do, you know, should we go there and like put our feet on it to hold it down? Like, what should we do? What, what are we supposed to do? That's the kind of confused amazement that the disciples are facing at this moment, when Jesus, again, begins to sort of levitate and just goes all the way up into the clouds and they can't see him anymore. And so for us today, we, you know, we can only read this story uh, from this historical account from an ancient text. It's you know, they were confused by it. They were perplexed by it. And it's reasonable that we would be too. What is going on here? Why, why is Jesus gone up in this way? And so the disciples who were standing there found it strange. Then it, it's okay for us to, can we just admit that together? Okay, this one is strange. Can we just admit that together? Um, the, uh, the interesting thing is the, the earliest followers of Jesus, they didn't just sort of file this story away as some sort of unsolved X file They pondered it. They chewed on it. They discussed it until they reached the depths of its significance for their lives. And in fact, they wrote about it. In fact, Jesus' ascension comes up dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. And the earliest Christians, they seem to be drawing really great significance out of this very strange event. So I want to do that too today. Let's ponder this event. Let's chew on it. Let's see what the earliest followers of Jesus wrote about it to see what significance, if any, it has for our lives today. And before we look at what the New Testament authors wrote about the ascension, let's just think for a minute about what what the ascension is. At its most basic level, the word ascension, or to ascend, it means to go upward. It's a a sort of spatial word. It refers to the space that your body occupies. So you can occupy a space that is lower on the ground, or you can ascend, and Occupy a space that is higher up. That's what airplanes do. You can ascend all sorts of things. You can ascend a ladder. You can ascend stairs. You can ascend a mountain. We don't usually use that word. For, you know, you're not going to say like, "Oh, he ascended the ladder." You, you just don't talk that way. You know, we usually we usually use it for like kings and queens. You ascend a throne from being prince or princess to become king or queen. And so we don't use it just to sort of change, talk about the change in your physical location. We say it's, it's a change of status. That's how we tend to use it. So when somebody becomes king or queen, there is a ceremony where they, you know, not only do they often spatially ascend some stairs to a chair that's sitting high up, but that new king, that new queen is given the highest authority in the land. And so to ascend to the throne, it's not just a change in your space, but it's a change in status. You could travel down to London, you could pay your fee to enter Westminster Abbey, and you'd find this chair, King Edward's chair, there it is. That's the chair that's been used for coronation of the kings and queens of Britain and the Commonwealth for over 800 years. And you could jump over the ropes, and you could climb the steps, and you could sit in the chair... But you know that doesn't make you the reigning monarch. You're not all of a sudden king or queen. That's how you do it. (laughs) In fact, if you did that, it might even lower your status from free person to locked up criminal. That might happen. (laughs) The point is merely climbing the stairs and sitting on the throne. It doesn't make you king or queen. So ascension to the throne has much more to do with status than it does your, your topography. And so the word ascension, it's spatial language used to describe something much deeper than your physical space. And so when somebody ascends to the throne of the commonwealth, it changes their relationship with the people of the commonwealth. The spatial ascension up the stairs to the throne, it's a visual representation of the deeper truth of the new monarch's status. And so if that's true, what about the ascension of Jesus Christ? Was there something more to it than just a change in physical location? Well, the New Testament authors, they seem to think, think so. There's a, a sort of mosaic of passages throughout the entire New Testament that speak about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And one of the first things you learn about the ascension of Christ in the New Testament is that it's not, it's not just space travel. His, his ascension, it's kingly. It's not just spatial One of the most important New Testament passages about this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. It's going to come up on the screen. You don't need to turn there, but just take a look at this with me. The context of this, it's, it's the second half of an ancient hymn that is about the four main movements about the life of Jesus. It talks about his incarnation. It talks about his death. It says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and being obedient to death on a cross. And now in the second half, it refers to his resurrection, but then it focuses its attention, actually, on his ascension. Take a look with me at what it says. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what this text is showing us is that Jesus' ascension is not just physical, it's not just spatial, but it's primarily it's kingly. It's a change in status from humbled servant to exalted king. The fact that he ascends physically into the clouds is a physical representation of his change in status from one who has been completely and utterly humbled by becoming obedient to death on a cross to one who's been exalted to the highest place. I've talked about this before in our church, but the phrase that Paul uses to describe the ascension of Jesus Christ, it's exalted Him to the highest place. And if you looked in the original text, in the original language, you'd find that that's actually just one word. All those words, exalted Him to the highest place. Six words is actually just one word. And it's, even, it's a made-up word. And so it literally reads... Therefore, God hyper-exalted him. Now, before Uber became an app uh, that you used to call for a lift across town, it was a slang word that you put in front of other words to say something was the ultimate, right? I'm Uber excited about this. But actually, even before that, it was a German word, meaning above or over. But it got barred by hipsters a few years ago, and so you'd call this person uh, Uber excited, This person is uber-talented. I'm not sure how many instruments, but it's more than Tim was playing this morning. And uh, this person is is an (laughs) uber-hipster. I don't know what to say about that picture. Look back at Philippians 2, verse 9. God uber-exalted him. Hyper-exalted him. And Paul says that God has exalted him to the highest place. There isn't a higher place for him to be exalted to. He is above all. He is over all. He is hyper-exalted to the highest place. And then look at this. Not only that, but his name is now the highest name because he's been given the name that is above every name. And so Jesus' ascension, it's not His escape from the confines of this earth. It's His exaltation as King over every created thing. He ascends to the throne room of heaven, hyper-exalted, name above every name. Well, let's keep looking at this mosaic of New Testament passages about the ascended Christ because His ascension, it's also, notice this, it's bodily, not merely spiritual, Stay with me in the book of Philippians. And here's the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 20. It's, again, it's on the screen. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, notice this, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Every movement in this series, His incarnation, His death on the cross, His resurrection, we've been looking at Jesus in a body, in the flesh, in a human body. The eternal Son of God became a human being in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He walked on earth in real flesh and blood. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He felt the tiredness of a long day and the emotions of the death of a friend. And in the flesh of a man, His hands and His feet felt the excruciating pain of being nailed to a cross. And the agony of being left alone to hang there. And not only that, but He was resurrected in the flesh in a real human body. After the resurrection, His disciples, they touched Him. They ate with Him. He spoke with them. He was resurrected in a real flesh and blood body. But for some reason... When we think of Jesus in heaven, we think of Him as a spiritual being with no body. We tend to think that Jesus, He must have like unzipped His skin suit, stepped out of it. But that's not what this text shows us. The text says that Jesus has a glorious physical body. And so just as Jesus Christ was born, lived, crucified, buried, and resurrected, in a human body get this he now get this he now reigns in heaven as king in a human body do you know what that means it means that in the person of Jesus Christ get this humanity has now entered the heavenly throne room there is a human body in the heavenly throne room That's what the ascension is. And so if Christ is ascended, then what difference does that make to me? I mean, that's all—that's deep, rich theology I've just given you. What difference does that make to me as I study in the university or as I raise children? Why does it matter as I teach in the classroom or as I work in the hospital or the doctor's surgery, as I have meetings in the conference room, or serve coffee in the cafe, what difference could that make to my marriage? Or my relationships that Jesus Christ is ascended? Wasn't this just some event that happened a couple thousand years? How could that impact today? Why does it matter that Jesus is king? And that Jesus is in heaven in a human body? Well, we're going to have another reading from the New Testament that will help us unpack the relevance of the ascension of Christ. The so name going to come and read to us from Matthew chapter 17.
1: After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Whilst he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus.
0: In a 2013 essay uh, in The New Statesman, artist Alison Lapper, who, uh, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a, a famous sculptor, and she was born without arms. And throughout her childhood, she was denied the affection that she needed as a child. And in this essay that she writes, she reflects on her experiences and what they can tell us about humanity. She was asked by The New Statesman to answer a specific question, and the question is this, What are the needs that make us human? That's what they wanted her to answer. And as she reflects on her childhood, here's a little bit of what she wrote. She wrote, as toddlers, we were taken to Brighton Beach, and we emptied it in ten minutes. We were never asked if we minded being repeatedly sprawled and naked in front of ten to fifteen medical professionals and endlessly poked, pulled, rotated, and photographed. Every Wednesday afternoon, wealthy donors would peer at us through the classroom windows. didn't seem to see children, just poor, pathetic, unloved creatures. She goes on to say, Yet I was aware that kindness made me feel loved. Kindness that I had experienced from my foster parents, my sister, some of the nursing staff, and all the teachers at Chaley. But of them all, my rock was always Nurse Mary Shepherd. Because of her, I recognized that human beings were more than just fed, watered, educated, and disciplined. Despite my upbringing, the need to love and be loved was instinctive. And You see on the screen, this is how she completes her essay. So what do I think makes us human? Four needs. To love, to be loved, to be accepted, and to be respected. Did you catch that? She said, the most basic instinctive need of every human being is to love, to be loved, to be accepted, and to be respected. And what I want us to see today is that the ascension of Jesus actually answers the instinctive need to be loved, to be accepted, and to be respected. Now in the passage we just had read in Matthew chapter 17, what we read about, it's actually a precursor to the ascension. It's a a sort of pre-ascension. Jesus takes three of his followers and they climb up. They ascend. I don't know if you noticed that. But they ascend a mountain. And on the mountain, Jesus is transformed. He becomes glorious. It says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. But notice, it wasn't just a spatial thing. It wasn't just that they went up the mountain And it wasn't just a spiritual thing. He didn't leave his body. He stayed in his physical body, which became glorious. But did you notice? You saw his status of authority because two of the most important figures in all of Jewish history actually came to speak with him. And so what the three disciples witness is this pre-ascension a precursor to what they would witness when Jesus ascends to the throne room of heaven. It's a bodily ascension to rule as king. They see Jesus in His glory. But the most important thing, the really, really important thing about this particular event is did you notice what God the Father says about the Son, Jesus Christ? Did you notice what He said in verse 5? While He was still speaking, a bright light covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is My Son. Whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. God the Father completely and utterly loves, accepts, and respects Jesus Christ. He says, I love Him. He says, I accept Him. I'm well pleased with Him. And he respects him. He says Jesus is worth listening to. I mean, isn't that how you know you're you're respected? That people listen to you? Jesus Christ is loved, accepted, and respected by God the Father. But what about you? What do your friends think of you? What do your colleagues think about you? What do your neighbors think about you? What does your family think about you? Your parents, your children? And ultimately, what does God think about you? Do you want to be loved? Do you want to be accepted? Do you want to be respected? You can have all of that perfectly and completely and securely in the person of Jesus Christ who has ascended to the throne room of heaven. And do you know, how, you know how you can know that you have those things for sure? Let's keep looking at this mosaic of passages in the New Testament. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it will be on the screen. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what this text means? It means that if you are with Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus, that's the language it uses. If that's true of you, if you're a Christian, whatever God the Father thinks of Jesus Christ, He thinks of you. He thinks the very same thing of you. That means if Jesus Christ is loved by God the Father, you're loved by God the Father. If Jesus Christ is accepted by God the Father, you are accepted by God the Father. If Jesus Christ is respected by God the Father, you are respected by Him too. So how do you receive this love? How do you receive this acceptance, this respect from God the Father? Well, look at what the Apostle Paul goes on to say in the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. How do you receive this love? How do you receive this acceptance, this respect from God? It's by His grace. You receive God's love, God's acceptance, His respect by receiving His grace. Notice what Paul is very careful to say here. He says it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. See, we're always working so hard to try to make ourselves acceptable. That God would accept us. That God would love us. But this text says you don't receive God's love. You don't receive His acceptance by working for it. You receive it by grace through faith. That when you become a Christian, when you make Jesus Christ the very center of your life by putting your faith in Him, For the forgiveness of your sins. Then you're in Christ. And when you do that, this text actually tells us that you have an ascension of sorts. We've been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We go through an ascension. Your status changes from someone who is dead in your sins to someone who is alive in Christ. And all of the love God the Father has for the Son, all of the acceptance that God has for the Son, all of the respect that God the Father has for the Son becomes yours. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be eternally loved by God the Father? Don't you want to be eternally accepted by Him? Don't you want His respect? Well, you only have it. You only get that if you're in Christ who is ascended. And when you're in Christ who has ascended into the heavenly throne room, there are some incredible benefits that the New Testament authors tell us about. I'm only going to tell you about three of them. There's more. Do you remember at the start we were asking what difference does it make in the lecture hall, in the hospital? What difference does it make when your children are being disobedient, your marriage is suffering, when you're feeling loneliness, of singleness? What difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Because first, I want you to know that Jesus Christ's ascension answers our anxiousness. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the ascended Jesus Christ, he's our priest in heaven. And if Jesus is our priest in heaven, it means that we have a priest there who's able to sympathize, who's able to empathize in our anxiousness with our weaknesses. And there's this incredible story in Acts chapter 7 where we see the ascended Jesus actually doing this. We see him empathizing, sympathizing. He's acting as this empathetic, sympathetic priest. In Acts chapter 7, there's a Christian named Stephen, and he's been captured for telling people about Jesus. And the religious rulers, they decide that the penalty for that is to stone him to death. They're going to kill him. And listen to what happens while Stephen is being captured. This comes from Acts chapter 7. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You sing the ascended Christ. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of Stephen's anxiousness, in the midst of his greatest moment of weakness, Look, you're never more weak than when you're captured and being taken to your death. That is the moment of greatest weakness. Stephen is completely and utterly powerless. And so who does he look to in that moment? He looks to the ascended Jesus Christ. And look then how he's able to respond as he's pelted with stones. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. While they were stoning him. Okay, stones are hitting him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the Bible's euphemism for dying. Where did Stephen get this kind of courage? How could he stand there while stones are hitting him and he knows he's going to die? Where does he get this kind of power? He might have known intellectually that Jesus was his Savior, but you see, it's when he meditates on, when he glimpses the ascended Jesus Christ, who is his priest at the right hand of God the Father, his priest who sympathizes with him, that's when his anxiousness is answered. And so listen, if if Jesus is your priest... Before the Heavenly Father, right now, if He's your priest right now, that means that when the Father sees you, He sees the purity, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so all Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. And so that means, like for Stephen, when the authorities were saying to Stephen, You're guilty, Stephen knew that because of Jesus Christ, the Father would say to him, You're accepted. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When on earth he was disrespected, he could look to the ascended Christ and know that in Christ he's respected by the ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. By God the Father. And so do you feel anxious? Do you feel powerless? Here's how you counter that anxiousness. In the ascended Christ, you are loved. You are accepted and you are respected. That's one benefit. Here's the second. Jesus Christ's ascension fulfills our loneliness. In John chapter 20, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' closest followers, she grabs hold of Jesus. We actually heard that story this morning. And when she did that, Jesus said to her in John chapter 20, verse 17, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Well, do you know what he's showing her in that moment? He's showing her that she hasn't understood what He taught several chapters earlier in John chapter 14. In John 14, Jesus tells the disciples that He's going to ascend to the heavenly throne room. But that they shouldn't fear that. Because if He does that, if He goes, He's going to send them a helper, an advocate. He's going to send His Holy Spirit. And Jesus says something incredible about the Holy Spirit. He says in John chapter 14, verse 17... He's going to be with you. And He's going to live in you. That's what He says about the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you and He's going to live in you. But He tells them this could only happen if He ascends, if He returns to God the Father. And this is what I think Mary doesn't understand in John chapter 20. She doesn't get this. She wants to hold on to Jesus. She doesn't want to be left alone. But what Mary didn't grasp is that if she let Him go, Then she would get an even greater access to him, even stronger love relationship. Because if he sends his Holy Spirit to be with her and to be in her, then it means Jesus would never leave her. He wouldn't just be standing beside her some of the time, but through the Holy Spirit, he'll be in her heart all the time. And so, do you feel lonely? Have you left your home country and found yourself in a completely alien culture to your own, thousands of miles away from your family and the foods that you like and the pace of life that you're used to? Are you lonely? Are you longing for a partner, for someone to be intimate with? Or have you lost someone? Have you lost a relationship? the ascended Jesus Christ, the King who is bodily in heaven, has sent you His Spirit to live in your heart. In Romans chapter 5, it says that the Holy Spirit pours the love of Christ into our hearts. And so because Jesus has ascended, you're never alone. His Holy Spirit is in you. You are always loved and always accepted into His family through the Holy Spirit. That's the second benefit. But wait, there's more. Here's the third. Jesus Christ's ascension provides our advocate. Now, Do you remember the two points I made way back at the very beginning? That Jesus is ascended as our King and that He's ascended in a real flesh and blood body in the person of Jesus Christ, humanity has now entered the heavenly throne room to be king. Do you know what that means? It means that we have a powerful advocate. We have an advocate who speaks, get this, who speaks as one of us on our behalf. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, and authority, power, and dominion, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. You saw those two points in there. He's raised in, in his body and he's given authority over everything. But notice in verse 22 what the ascended Jesus Christ is to use his authority for. Do you see it there at the end of the verse? For the church. Jesus Christ was raised in His body, placed in the heavenly throne, given all authority. And He to use that authority for the church. This passage is saying that the man Jesus Christ who died for you, who was raised from the dead for you, who has ascended for you, is now at the right hand of God the Father. where He has been given ultimate authority over every power and dominion. Every single thing is placed under His feet. And He uses all of that power, all of that authority for you. For His church. And do you know what that means? It means that He's our man in heaven. If you belong to Him, then everything that happen, all, happens ultimately happens for your benefit. And do you know one of the best ways He advocates for you? In Revelation chapter 12, That's a passage is talking about the defeat of Satan. Revelation chapter twelve verse ten says, "Now have come the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah, right, the King who's ascended. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down." The ascended Jesus Christ uses his authority to defeat Satan. And so when Satan accuses us, Jesus Christ advocates for us. He defeats him, he throws him down. Martin Luther, who's the great reformer 500 years ago, he used to write about and talk about Satan's accusations. And he used to tell how the devil would come and whisper accusations in his ear and would say things like, Martin, you're a liar, greedy, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. And here's how Martin Luther would respond. He'd say, Well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you don't know the half of it. I've done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins, His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all of my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. Do you feel guilty? Do you feel accused? Do you feel unacceptable because of your sin? In the ascended Jesus Christ, you have an advocate who speaks boldly on your behalf, an advocate who has been given every authority, every power, every dominion in heaven and on earth, and he is the one who is your advocate in heaven. He is the one who speaks for you. He is the one who says, for that person I shed my blood. And so when Jesus speaks on our behalf, Or accepted, and so what difference does it make that Jesus Christ has ascended in bodily form to reign as King in heaven? Well, it answers the most instinctive need every single one of us has—to be loved, and to be accepted, and to be respected. In the ascended Jesus Christ, we have an answer to our anxiousness. We have the fulfillment of our loneliness. We have an advocate who crushes our accuser, and who uses all of His authority to speak on our behalf. Don't you want that? Don't you want Him? Don't you want the assurance to know that God the Father loves you, that He accepts you, that He respects you? You can only have that if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ Jesus, whatever God the Father thinks of Jesus Christ, He thinks the same of you. That means that if Jesus Christ is loved by the Father, you're loved by the Father. If He's accepted by the Father, you're accepted by the Father. If He's respected by Him, you're respected by Him. All of the basic human instinctive needs met in the ascended Jesus Christ. And you can receive that today by placing your faith in Jesus Christ who is ascended, who is standing before the throne of God above. And if you want that, you can have that assurance today. In just a couple of moments, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you want to be assured today of God's love, of God's acceptance, then you can put your faith in Jesus Christ today. And as a way of expressing that, as a way of saying that you've done that, you can pray the prayer along with me as I lead you. The prayer is going to come on the screen, and I'll leave uh, just a few moments of quiet for you to read it and for us to reflect on what we've heard, and then I'll lead us in that prayer. And then we're going to worship this ascended, risen Christ. Just a few moments of quiet. If you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can pray this along with me in your heart. Heavenly Father, today I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. I admit that I have sinned against you and others. I believe that Jesus Christ died to pay for my sins. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life to give me the love and acceptance you have given to Jesus through your Holy Spirit. Amen.